Coming up next, the booking reads Beowulf by Seamus. Or Seamus? How do you say? How do you actually say Seamus Heaney is how he's. Seamus Heaney. Well, technically, it's the Beowulf poet, translated by Seamus Heaney. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Coming up next, the booking reads The Beowulf Poet's Immortal Classic, Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Nathan Alperson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I'm joined today by Jacob. What's your middle name? Kyle. Jacob Kyle Menzel, the pastor, who is a master of reading. How are you doing, Jacob Kyle Menzel? Pretty good. How about you, Nathan? Ah. Brand- <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right. I'm, all, I'm joined today also by, what's your middle name? Scott. Brandon Scott. <laughs> Mr. Brandon Chasteen, PhD, ABD. How is everybody? Well, I'm okay. Yeah. You guys have fun reading Beowulf? Yeah. No. Oh. No. No. Okay. Not this time. Yeah, me neither. What's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> Yeehaw. Brandon is, of course, firing off his guns because we've gotten to the segment known as the Contextual Techinson, where Brandon is going to provide some much-needed context for our work. Take it away, Brandon. All right, so context for Beowulf. Um, I figure we could approach this two ways. One, give a little contextual brief history behind the poem and then get into some things that have interest critics, might interest us, might not. We'll find out. So the history behind Beowulf is this is firmly planted in Old English poetry and the traditions that surround the Anglo-Saxon takeover of Britain after the Roman Empire. So you've got the Angles and the Saxons, they come over, they bring their language, their Germanic history with them. English becomes very guttural, very alliterative and sound. And this dominates Old English poetry and you see it in poems such as The Wayfarer, The Seafarer, or The Wonder, sorry, and it's The Seafarer. And um, a lot of these are preserved in um, these big manuscripts called codexes that we have. We have the Exeter Codex. We have this other one that's called the Noel Codex, named after the guy's name who is written in the front. And that's actually where the Beowulf manuscript is. It's the only existing copy of the Beowulf manuscript. There's only one... Only one. Extant copy of yep. Beowulf in the world. That's right. And it almost was burned in a fire, I think, in like the 1700s. It was in this guy named Robert Cotton's library. He was this guy. He had a library that rivaled London's library of all these old manuscripts. And um, it was kind of... it's. For people who love books, it was kind of cool. He had these shelves and he would say it's like located on this shelf under the uh, bust of this Roman emperor that he would have. And that's how people could find it in this massive library that he had. It was had organized by books. bust. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty funny. So you have um, the Anglo-Saxons and we don't have a lot of the actual poems that are, come down to us except from the monasteries and the monks who would write them into these codexes. And so a lot of them that we have are from around the 1100s, even though the actual poems probably predate that. Some people think that Beowulf is as early as the 800s and was passed down through oral tradition from one poet to the next, kind of like people think the Homeric epics came into existence that way. But yeah, so th- this is this is how we have Beowulf. You have early England, it was Christianized around what, the 700s, and you are actually probably the 600s, and then you have Bede, he wrote his history in the 700s. And so Beowulf, if it was written in around the 800s, which is what Tolkien and some other... 8th century. 
Eighth century. Yeah, you're right. If it was written around that same period, that's why some of these Christian elements make it into the poem, right? So that's that's sort of the context, the historical context surrounding. I don't know if you guys had anything you wanted to add to that. I didn't spend a lot of time looking at background, but I thought it was interesting that one of the cases for it being an earlier date, an eighth eighth century date, was that the memory of paganism was too real yeah. for it to be a, a couple generations, too many generations removed. I think that was Tolkien's argument, right? Yeah. He wanted to place it about as early as anybody, didn't he? Yeah. Most scholars nowadays, they at least, they think with certainty that the Noel manuscript was around the 1100s or 11th century. I can't remember which. But whether or not the Beowulf poem actually predates that, no one knows. There is, there is linguistic evidence that it was earlier, too. Um, some of the kinnings and stuff like that that take place in the poem suggest that it was earlier. As far as the way the poem works uh, is – so the, the, the way it works is it's it's a larger three-movement act, I guess, kind of. It, some people – we'll get into it later when, whether or not it's an epic or – that's up for critical debate. But you have these three movements. You have the fight with Grendel, then you have the fight with the mother, and then you have the fight with the dragon. And it's kind of, it starts out with the glory of youth and then the sort of gray fading of old age with um, Beowulf's death with the dragon, not for any spoilers. But the way the poem fits together, it fits together thematically with his confronting these monsters and then the glory of the hero going out and facing with courage this creature. And then it has all these other weird histories that get interwoven. And so themes of fate, themes of doom, and then also themes of God's directing history get interwoven throughout the poem. And that's one of Tolkien's arguments as to why the poem is actually a thematically unified is because all these things, which other critics had argued should have actually been the center of the poem. Um, so these weird stories about the Norwegian, not the Norwegian, but the uh, Nordic myths and legends, they thought should actually, those were the materials of actual poetry. And that the failure of Beowulf was that the poet chose to make this sort of boring story about this guy who just goes and kills some monsters, the primary focus of the poem, right? Tolkien, in his famous essay, which is a really good essay, if you want to follow up and read more on Beowulf, he argues against that. It's called The Monsters and the Critics. Yep. So that's the broader thematic unity of Beowulf. And I, I tend to agree with Tolkien. I do think it's thematically unified. At the sentence level, it's broken up into um, what's called a, two hemistitches. And one line is called a stitch. And so the way it works is you have your first hemistitch and then your second hemistitch broken by a size zero, which is just a natural breaking point in a poetic line. And each... Hemi stitch is I like how I'm doing on either side of the microphone. The <laughs> listener can't read see this, but I'm uh, I'm acting like the microphone is the size zero. <laughs> so over here on the left side of the microphone, you have two natural accents within the hemi stitch where an accent could naturally fall, and these are where alliteration will happen. And then in the second hemi stitch, you have places where you have another two natural places where a cons uh, stress will fall. And the way that this alliterative verse works is the alliteration is established in the first hemistitch, either in the first or the second, often in both, and then always is echoed in the third and never in the last. 
in actual English, or rarely, I suppose, there's freedom. But it's usually echoed in the first stress of the second hemistitch. And then other cool things that happen, you have a lot of apposition, which is where one noun will have various modifying phrases connected to it. And that's a poetic device that's used throughout the poem. And then you also have what are called kinnings, which is like well-road or word hoard, right? These words that are created by kind of compressing words together. And so poetically, that's uh, at the detail level, that's how the poem works. Well, that kind of is a good transition into the next part where we look at the other aspect of criticism, trying to figure out whether Beowulf is an epic or not. And one of the most famous essays on this is uh, C.S. Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost, where he argues that it it is an epic, but it's more of this primary style. And so what that means is that very oral in tradition, very focused on the hero as opposed to nation building. And so, yeah, this would be meant to be spoken. Right? You, you can't um, separate this style of poetry from the sense of us, you're sitting around the mead hall, the fire is roaring, and then what's called, the, I guess at the time would be the scope, I think is what it was, the bard. He would take the chair, he would take his glass of mead, and he would start speaking this to you. And um, obviously, if that's what he's doing... With oh, that instrument? Um, I, I would imagine there would be instruments with Beowulf. Probably a lyre or something. Maybe not a lyre. I don't know what they would have. A lute. A lute. <laughs> a lute and or lyre. It would definitely, in the Greeks, they would have. But yeah, he would have all these people sitting around, and they'd be familiar faces. They would know these histories. At least one portion of the poem has, I'm trying to remember where I saw it. There's one part of the poem where critics think that for sure the poet was complimenting the heirs of this one king. Oh, it's where he was talking about that wife who went crazy and would kill anyone who looked at her. Mm. Remember? And then he said that guy, yeah, then he said that king came in and tamed her and made her a good queen. He thinks that he was particularly complimenting the heirs of that king who would have probably been sitting around listening to this poem be read to them. And, um, and other, th- other things that are involved with the kinnings and the repeated phrases and these appositions are it makes it where it's easier to listen to. You can follow it because these repetitions help build expectations so your listener knows what to expect. And so that's one of Lewis's points about primary epic is that that becomes a very um, predominant feature of these sorts of epics. You get people who argue against it. So I don't think Tolkien in particular thought that this was an epic. Like you, I think you mentioned off mic the other night that this was, he, he sees it as an elegy. Whether or not it matters or whether or not we're going to decide that today, I, I What's know. the difference? Well, an epic would be focused on this great hero's feats and his adventures, basically the adventure. So Achilles or, yeah, or Odysseus or – for the primary epic, it would be focused just on that hero set against a backdrop of for a primary epic example being <clears throat> anything by Homer or yep. Beowulf. Yeah, and so you have the adventures of Odysseus, of Achilles, and they're set against the backdrop of just the fatalistic, glory-driven world of Greece. Mm-hmm. And then you have Beowulf, and he's set against the encroaching doom of the Nordic vision of northernness, where you have the heroes set against uh, monsters, right? And the monsters will win, and so what matters in the end is courage, right? But there's no there's no value beyond the heroicism, if that makes sense. So the the change happens with like uh, Virgil's Aeneid is where he really points the change into secondary epic because the value is beyond um, Aeneas there. In fact, Aeneas becomes kind of a secondary figure to the Rome building, 
right? So Rome is what is really important in piety to the Roman state. And so that's why when you get these religious ideas of being pious to Rome and why Aeneas was a hero was because he gave up what was good for him for the establishment of the Roman Empire. And then Paradise Lost, obviously, is about the establishment of <laughs> not Satan's empire. Nobody <laughs> argues. Well, you don't want to. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I was curious as to why I wanted to hear you explain what an elegy is and why. Yeah, Tolkien so why why it's an elegy would be because for Tolkien, what matters more than just the story being told is the poet telling it, and so what he sees is he sees this very intelligent, well-read. Mo- modern for the period. I mean, even if he was the eighth century, he was Christianized. He was he was a Christian, looking back on the past and kind of writing an elegy for this past that was dying and that was already doomed, and then looking at it from a Christian perspective, right? And so Beowulf was not a Christian hero, but he looked and he saw the good things about this, but also the doomed things about it, and then saying it's elegy and it's death. And I kind of like that reading. I think it's partly true. Definitely makes the ending make sense, and it definitely does what Tolkien wants it to do, which is destroy all those critics that say, why is, why are all these, why are the monster stories in the forefront? Why are all the other stories in the periphery? Well, if it's a allergy, then all we need is Beowulf's great deeds when he was a young man. And then his, his death and, you know, fate coming to us all in the form of a dragon. Yeah. And Doug Wilson and his essay, he argues that I guess he kind of takes a similar position to Tolkien in the sense that he says that I think he takes it one step too far, maybe, but he's, yeah, he, he's, he's riffing on Tolkien essentially. He argues that the poet is saying that the world cannot be redeemed except through Christ, right? And so he's looking back and showing Beowulf's eventual death, and you know, as much glory as there was there, as much courage and goodness as there was there. He might have been a good king, but that world did not have Christ, and so it was doomed to fail. That, that's, but that's following the same vein as Tolkien, where he argues that he's looking back on this world that his, that his listeners would have been familiar with, this pagan world. And that's why he would argue that it needed to be the 8th century, because this pagan world needed to be very real to them. This, this world that they had just been Christianized out of, and showing, you know, this was your grandfather, your great-great-grandfathers. There was good to the world they had. There was courage. There was greatness. They were some good kings. <laughs> but in the end, they failed because they didn't have what we have, right? They didn't they, – they still had these pagan rituals, and in their foolishness, they didn't see that God is the one who directs human fate. And right. We'll talk at the end about – what we actually think the theme of the poem is. I think Douglas Wilson probably goes a little bit too far in saying that the poem is, in fact, an intentional Christian apology. Does that answer your question about what he meant by elegy? Yeah, I just thought it was worth talking about. Oh, yeah. So the only other thing I have that just kind of interests me um, is the whole issue of the translation. Um, And this will be something we deal with a lot, but translation theory as far as poetry goes. People criticize Heaney for his translation. Did either of you read his intro to his book i started it i i read it the first time i read this version which was but that was several years ago yeah i have read it well it's helpful because he says that the way he ended up approaching it is he realized that irish poetry at its root is very anglo-saxon and sound and it does rely more on alliteration than it does on rhyme and so if you look in it he's right i went back and looked at some of his early poems like digging and um it does rely a lot on these guttural 
similarities. And so the issue with translation, um, one of, is whether or not it should be equivalent, whether or not it should be um, strict. You know, how strict should the translation be? And man, you can go into so many places with this, but you have one camp that thinks, so you get these weird prose renditions of Homer. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these. The first version of Homer I read was in prose. Well, do you know why it's like that? It's because they wanted to be very strict and they weren't going to give you metrical lines. They just gave you like a word-by-word translation of the poem. Mm. And so that's like as literal a translation as you can possibly get. And then you get guys like Fitzgerald and Fagels. They can come along and they try to, instead of just giving you a literal translation, they try to give you more of an interpretation that takes into consideration context, takes into consideration all their knowledge of the Greek world. Poetic forms. Yeah, poetic forms and, and, and interprets it for you so that you actually get to experience the Iliad in English. Right, and so they make they they almost take English and make it Greek so that you can. Well, it might be helpful for our listeners if they, uh, you know, if you're listening to this because you come from a Christian background and it's a Christian podcast. Think about the different Bible translations. You've got the clunky wooden NASB, which is a very about as literal as translations come. And then the, on the other end of the spectrum, you have translations, quote unquote, like the message or like um, the New Living Bible, which are very free and just taking the thoughts of the... It's basically just an interpretation. Just an yeah. interpretation. There's, they're not... Loose interpretation. Right. But the problem, this is, that's good, because the problem that you end up getting into is who's doing the interpreting, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with Bible translation, it's essential that you're doing... Literal translation. You have the added because complication you, you of know, it being the word of God there. Yeah, which you yeah every there. word of the Bible is inspired, and God is appointed who's going to help in, interpret it. Well, one, we get to do it ourselves. Yeah. But two, he's given us pastors and elders uh, to preach, to teach, to open up and explain the word of God to us. And that's why we want to have you know, we, want, we want to have the actual words of God because God inspired those actual words. And we want to get back. And that's why we train pastors in the original languages so they can get back and look at what God inspired mm-hmm. and said. It's different when you're coming to something like, like Beowulf, you know, or, or Homer. Yeah. Um, that's right. And a lot of the translation theory that I appreciate, there's a really good essay. It's I tried reading it again. I thought it was really good. And it does have some good points. It's by this critic called Walter Benjamin. He was a Jewish critic back in the early 1900s that I like. His argument is that the best translations, every he said every poem, its translation should be done by a poet who can most sympathize with its meaning in the other language. And so you want Beowulf to be translated by someone who can translate really good poetry. And that's why I think the Heaney version is so fantastic, because I think he captures more than anyone else has the spirit of what Beowulf was to its listeners. So, and he gets not just the, um, the meaning across, but the feel of the poem, I think, the, the texture of it, the sounds of it. As it would, as it would most likely be listened to at the time, and so if you if you listen to or if you read his introduction, he talks quite a bit about his choice of the word "so." And why did he choose that? Well, he didn't just choose it because he was trying to modernize it. He actually had a certain person in mind. It was these um, Irish field hands who loved to talk and tell stories to one another. And so he tried to imagine. So what would it, what would it be like if one of them became a bard and were to sing to us this poem? And so he's like, well, so they would start out by just trying to get our attention with so. And that starts the poem. I can get on board with translation like that. Mm-hmm. 
I yeah. think that I think that's perfectly fine. Um, some of the really good translation that's happening with Russian literature is very similar with Pevier and Volkonsky, I think, are who they are. Yeah. But what they do is they they look at the whole thing and they try to see the story they're telling, the sentences that are being written, and trying to put it into English to best capture all the all the meanings and as all the art, artistry as artfully all. as Dostoevsky did in Russian, yeah. or as artfully as the poet did in Beowulf or as Homer yeah. did. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the key word is artfully. Mm-hmm. To, to do it artfully, you can't just do a word-for-word translation. You have to best try and put it in to the language you're translating it into. And so that's that would be my defensive. Oh, yeah. sure. And the, the attack on Heaney would be that in capturing the spirit, he loses a lot of the letter. He's willing to sacrifice things. And, and if you're a scholar or even if you're just somebody that appreciates the poem, you can argue, what does he lose? What does he gain? He gets rid of a lot of the Kennings. He, he, he says in his introduction, for the most part, I've called a sword a sword. There are certain things that he loses. The, I, I, read, I've, I have not read the Tolkien translation that came out a year or two ago, but there's a, there's, there's a nice article about it in The New Yorker where they talk about some of the things that Haney lost. The lady in the article, as I recall, says that Haney and he's very lyrical. He's captured this. You know, he wrote a great poem is what she says. She, she just doesn't think it's as much Beowulf as Tolkien's version in this case is because she thinks he loses some of the some of the gore, some of the masculinity, some of the sweat, some of the dirt that, that Tolkien, I guess, managed to get into it. So that's just a example of the give and take in the process. Yeah, it makes me interested to read the Tolkien version at some point, but it doesn't change the fact that I just he wrote a great he, poem. He just wrote a great poem. Yeah. That's really just it's just fantastic. When it comes to translation, that's the sort of give and take you have to be willing to put up with. You either say, "Okay, I'm going to be very academic and scholarly about this and want the cold words translated for me." Or and I'm sure there's a place for that. Oh, there's definitely I just a place don't, for that. I don't care about it. Well, there's I'm a not, fantastic version just by a professor here at, at IU, at IU yeah. Artie Folk. He translated line for line and it's I mean if you're a Beowulf scholar then you'd be dumb not to look at those sorts of things or even if you're very interested in in Anglo-Saxon you'd be dumb not to go and look at those things but saying that that is the best translation of Beowulf into English I took a class with Artie Folk he loves Heaney's version Mm -hmm. he respects it for the reasons that we're talking about here so yeah I guess now might be as good a time as any to bring up our uh the fact that we have a big example <laughs> of what? <laughs> what are you talking about? What Brad is talking about. <laughs> so uh, let's just uh, let's break with precedent right now and uh, actually have a little discussion based on the contextual. T- before we get out of context, let's let's discuss the fact that we have a uh, version, a new verse rendering by Douglas Wilson of Beowulf, which came out a couple of years ago. Douglas Wilson, Pastor Douglas Wilson, is of course. A pastor who's the master of writing all kinds of books about reforming marriage and stuff like that. And to be fair, probably knows a lot more about Beowulf than we do. He probably does. <laughs> he probably does. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> what would we, how do you guys feel about Douglas Wilson's verse rendering of Beowulf? Well, I'll tell you, I picked my copy up and I read the first couple of lines. Well, let me read those first couple. Actually, would somebody read the first uh, couple lines of Haney and then we'll, we'll do Wilson just to get an idea of two different, two different translators. So, the spear Danes in days gone by and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. 
All right, here's Wilson, same thing. Hear the song of Spear Danes from sunken years. Kings had courage then, the kings of all tribes. We have heard their heroics, we hold them in memory. Shield Chiefson was one, scourge of all tribes. Took them all to his mead benches, mangled his enemies. Can I read that yes. from Heaney? There was Shield Chiefson, scourge of many tribes, a wrecker of mead benches, rampaging among foes. Shield Chiefson was one, scourge of all tribes, took them all to the mead benches, mangled his enemies. He rose and in rising, he wrecked all his foes. This terror of the hall troops had come far. A foundling at first he flourished in might. <laughs> a torrent of terror war-tested his mettle. A foundling to start with. He would flourish later on as his powers waxed and his worth was proved. Oh, man, that's so good. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> a torrent of terror war-tested his mettle, so he bested and broached the borders of nations. The whale road was wide, but his warriors still crossed it. Gold came in glory. A good king, that was. Yeah, this is where you really hear the difference. In the end, each clan on the outlying coasts beyond the well road had to yield to him and begin to pay tribute. That was one good king. <laughs> I mean, come and, on. So, the spear danes in days gone I, by. I, I'll say what I said the very first time I read Doug's version, which is that it sounds like a Dr. Seuss poem. My, my Amazon review of Doug's poem, one of the only Amazon reviews I ever wrote, just says Dr. Seuss's Beowulf. Did anybody, um, did anybody find it helpful? <laughs> I don't know that anybody found it helpful. It's just it. the natural <laughs> feeling that it gives you. It's, it, it does. That. It's because he, he does stay faithful to that alliteration and the rhythms and just sets you but, up to think it should rhyme and feel like Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. But listen to this. So does Haney to or Heaney to a large extent, but it's so much. It's it, he's a good poet, so it's mm, more right. subtle. So he has so the spear Danes in days gone by, and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. So you hear the alliteration. Oh yeah, it's just it's just that he's a master at it. Oh, he's fantastic. Right, it's just and he and he knows when and how to break the rules, and he doesn't care about. Sticking to forms like some engineer who set up a formula or a spreadsheet, he, he you know, he has a poetic ear and he's going to stick to his poetic ear. And it just so happens that his ear is ridiculous. Yeah. He's just, he's a real, he's good. Yeah, he's he's unparalleled for modern poets. See, yeah. did you see that subtle thing? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, his successor. <laughs> That's what – so I think I was supposed to read Beowulf in high school, and I couldn't. It was just so bad. And then I got – I don't even know how I came into this copy of of uh, Heaney's translation. But the first time I picked it up to read it, I found myself reading it out loud. And I had never done that before. I've never done it since. But I read that entire poem out loud just because it was – it just demanded to be – it was made to be heard. It was made to be – read or chanted or yeah. sung. This is, I just thought that was masterfully done. It just carried me along. It was really cool. Yeah. I, I started reading a lot of this out loud at home. The kids were pretty into it. Yeah. Anna, Anna loved it too. She was like, wow, what is that? Yeah, it's just the kids, the same thing happened the first time I read it. The kids would just sort of gravitate toward me as I read it. Yeah. But the, so the second go around, I listened to uh, Heaney read it himself on audio and the kids... We're just completely sucked into it. I don't know how much they understood, but just the musicality of it and the 
the the poetry of it was engaging in a way that pretty unique, pretty rare. And I don't want to make this into beat up the beat up on Doug Wilson podcast. The only reason I really bring him up is because I think it's such a good illustration of what Brandon's talking about in translation. Douglas Wilson actually found a alliterative form that's probably closer to the Anglo-Saxon. Certainly it's what some of the people, some of the reviewers say. But it's just not a good poem. You just, you don't want to read it. And when you do, you find yourself, you know, I tried to give it some dignity and read it well when I read it, but you do find yourself saying, gold came in glory, a good king that was. It makes you want to say that. It's just... The problem is that I can see two different good translations of Beowulf. One would be the literal translation that is helpful because you can see what it actually translates to in English. The other would be a poetic rendition of it, not something that falls in between and so like fails at both, mm-hmm. which is... Well, you can you can see why somebody would want to attempt it, though. Yeah. You know, to, to say, okay, well, we've got good literal translations. We have this fantastic poetic... Tra- I don't... I, Highly doubt Doug would have anything negative to say about Heaney's version. No, oh, no, it's I think favorite, he's just yeah. looking at it and saying, yeah. okay, I wonder if somebody – I want to try my hand and see if I can yeah, do I mean, the thing that nobody's been able to do before. I'm sure in its way it's a success, but it's not something that I as a non-scholar, as a casual reader, care about. And I'm not sure you'd be able to speak to this more than than anybody in this room, Brandon, if it's something that a scholar would care about. Who, Heaney's version? No, the Doug's. Well, no, yeah, they they wouldn't care about it. And it, I don't think they have. It's a self-admitted living Bible version. Yeah. I mean, he I just, mean, you have critics aren't going to care about this version. They might see it as, oh, well, somebody gave it a shot, but they're not. It's not going to be of any interest or value to them. But to be fair to Wilson, he does say that Heaney is one of his favorites. Well, and we have friends that prefer Doug's version that switched. Uh, yeah, I disagree. They're not. I don't think there are friends, but. <laughs> they're wrong to prefer Douglas Wilson's version. And Andrew's argument is that this is closer to the Anglo-Saxon. Don't care. The problem with any argument like Agreed. that. No, I, I don't care either. The problem with any argument like that, and I've said this in arguments with them, is that English is no longer Anglo-Saxon. And so to try and write an Anglo-Saxon poem that's not just a literal translation is going to fail because... English is no longer Anglo-Saxon. English is English. And so to get the sort of narrative muscularity and stuff that Beowulf gets, you got you have to translate it differently. And that's what Seamus Heaney tries to do and does very well. I mean, he, he gives the reasons that he, he knows that he's not getting all the kinnings. He knows that he's not getting all the alliteration. He knows that he's playing free with some of that. But his argument is that there's something else he saw in Beowulf that he needed to get before he cared about those things as much. Right. It just so happened that alliteration came out in his lines naturally and that he was able to be faithful in many places to these sorts of things. But it was this narrative Irish sort of speech that became important to him so that he has these words that he realized in the Anglo-Saxon had very close kinship with modern Irish words like thold, which means to suffer. And so he was able to just keep it and make it. Um, and so in some in some ways... He was more faithful to the original text in ways like that as well. You can either have an Anglo-Saxon translation or you can have an English poem. Yeah. But you can't have an Anglo-Saxon English poem. That's right. You can have an English poem that gets the spirit of the Anglo-Saxon. And so in that way, it becomes an Anglo-Saxon English poem, if that makes any sense. Right. But if you try to write Anglo-Saxon in English, it's going to be as silly as trying to write, yeah, Latin or French poetry in English. Right. You have to have a genius do it. Milton did it with Latin poetry. In Paradise Lost is this, is this weird thing, 
right? It's very weird. And everybody notes how weird it is. And so Heaney's Beowulf is weird. Nobody's ever written anything like it, right? And I don't think anybody ever will again. So. Yeah, it's also personal to Haney. It's yeah. idiosyncratic. Some of his choices are just like the guys at the bar talk that way. And I thought it was good for Beowulf. But it ends up – it's a masterpiece. You know, if Beowulf never existed, Haney still would have written a masterpiece of a poem. And I guess where I don't feel bad criticizing Pastor Wilson's poem is that it's just not a good poem. I don't care about – you know, at the end of the day, it has to hold up as its own thing. I agree with that. And that's why I, I don't put up with people saying – making arguments about – this version, the Douglas Wilson version being more accurate or more this or more that because it's just not good poetry. Well, the reason that argument doesn't work is because there are other poems besides his that are much more accurate. You have guys like the Artie Folk version, the the one you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's always going to be a balance between capturing the spirit and capturing the letter. And But what you can't do is say, well, this comes really close to the letter, so therefore it's good. You just can't do it. Do you guys think it's fair, a question that occurred to me in in listening to us discuss this, do you think it's fair to say that there's no such thing as a definitive translation of anything? Yeah, I think that's fair. Because language is always changing. And, you know, if... Maybe that's an obvious question. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reason to say that the King James is the definitive translation of the Bible. But you know what? We don't talk like we used to. There's always room for improvement. And there's always room for... You know, as language changes, there's always going to be need to be new translations. The King James Bible is actually a really good example because it's not the definitive Bible translation, but it is the definitive King James Bible translation. You know what I mean? It's a great work of art, entirely removed from any other considerations. You know, the the Psalm twenty three, the Luke two, the the classic passages. Right, and you could you could argue that this uh, Heaney translation is going to be comparable in a way in that it makes its own mark yeah hopefully in the it history lives of, as its in own the history literary of bi- accomplishment in the history of beowulf yeah. translations just like in the history of bible translations you ca- you can't not deal with the king james the king james is the king crown jewel of english bible translations no matter how outdated no matter how much english changes you have to go back to that and i think i'm i'm sure there's an argument to be made that in terms of Beowulf translations, he needs always going to be something that people have to reckon with, whatever else happens down yeah, the line. I think so. I mean, I, I would argue, I think he's just created a great work of literature, and it's mm-hmm. entirely apart from considerations as a translation. It's just a great Haney poem, hopefully one that will live, you know, as long as great poems are well, celebrated. Yeah, there's something, there's something different to poetic translation as to prose translation. Yes. Poetry, as great as prose is, Poetry has a musicality to it and artistry and depth of imagery and just this stuff that gets beyond just technical meaning to the way the words fit together and sound and the sentences move that you can't describe when you're just trying to impart information or you're just trying to tell the narrative, right? So there's stuff that Heaney does in his poem that is I don't want to say deeper, but is beyond just the meaning of the poem. It's beyond just the storytelling, right? It's it's the it's the stop, like the so, right? Mm-hmm. It's the rhythm and the yeah. cadence and yeah, the exactly, and that's that's why uh, poetry is very. It's the sister of music, right? In mm-hmm. many ways, 
and you can't divorce the two from each other. And so the cadence and the rhythm and the sound that the, that a natural a good poet naturally just hears and puts in that gets involved in these really masterful translations of poetry. So while all that to say, while yes, you might have five really fantastic translations of War and Peace, I don't think I could ever imagine there would be five really fantastic definitive translations of Beowulf. There's most likely going to be one that's the best. Simply because there's going to be one poet that's preeminent. There's a poet who turns it into poetry in English. Well, it'd be interesting. Maybe you'll have several that do that. I imagine Tolkien's version does. Well, the one thing that I know from the excerpts of Tolkien that I've read is that it reads like Tolkien. If you know Tolkien's poetry, if you know his, the great sweep of kind of the end of the Lord of the Rings, you know, the Battle of Pelennor Field, all that kind of grandiose Tolkienian stuff, that's, that's, a, that's how, you know, it's, if you imagine how Tolkien's Beowulf would sound, it sounds like that. That's not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, if you like Tolkien's voice, then that might be your favorite. Not to not to say that everything's relative, and but that but go ahead. Yeah, can I add just quickly? Have you read a lot of Heaney's poetry outside of Beowulf? I've read some. Some, yeah. Not a... What's strange about Beowulf is that this almost it kind of sounds like Heaney, but it kind of doesn't. This is yeah. like a different poet altogether. Yeah. It's like he became something else. Like this has a voice that's the Beowulf poet. It's. It's not Tolkien, right? It's not necess- It's not even really. But it, it really just shows his versatility as a yeah. poet, I think, because yeah, it is very different. Yeah, but what at least in most of his other poetry that I've read. Yeah. I guess what I'm arguing is that it's not the Beowulf poet, though. It's this third thing that's born out of the union that's really cool and special yep. and unique and valuable as a literary accomplishment in and of itself. He created yeah. a voice that is great and you can't have the voice without Haney and you can't have the voice without the Beowulf poet and in our praising the poem we're praising Haney as much as anything I guess I was just kind of qualifying you were saying it would be a Tolkien translation I was saying this is almost different right and maybe arguing it might be better because of that Oh, no, the airplanes are coming over, which means Jake has to say his baggage all over again. (laughs) Oh, no, did I do that already? The airplanes mean that baggage, for those of you that are listening to this for the first time, I'm sure you decided to tune in for our Beowulf episode. Why didn't you listen to our other episodes, though? There are some good ones in there. But baggage check, the sound of the airplane indicates baggage check, which is where we talk about what baggage we bring to this poem or brought to this poem. Uh, we already know maybe what baggage you said you read it in high school, Jake. Yeah, I started it in, I don't know if I actually read it in high school. I just thought it was dry and boring. And a couple of years ago, I got into a copy and of Heaney's translation and loved it and read it out loud. Like I said, this go around, I came to it thinking, oh, it's awesome, but it's also summertime. And I, it's something about summer reading that I, it's a little heavy or dark or cold or something. It was just wasn't ringing my bells so I didn't want to but uh, I ended up listening to Heaney read his own translation and uh, that was really nice yeah. Brandon so, what baggage did you bring? oh man um, read it in high school wasn't a good translation so wasn't blown away by it I remember being I got, it was just a dry introduction to Beowulf I read it with some other Anglo-Saxon stuff we were doing at the time I think like the, the poems I mentioned we the Wanderer and the Seafarer. We read those, and then we read Beowulf, and we talked about the themes and the monsters. We may have read Tolkien's essay at the time. Um, this would have been in high school. But otherwise, I didn't really 
fall in love with a poem until I was in Barnes and Noble and saw the CDs for Heaney's translation, got it and listened to it in my car and was blown away. I was amazed. There's something about listening to him speak it that was... Um, have you read Heaney's version yet? Or? I hadn't. And I went and bought a version, the one that I have right here. Because at that point in my life, these were the versions I bought. He's right. got a Norton critical right. thing that's like so I'm gonna one-eighth Beowulf and seven-eighths... That's the poem. ...essays and <laughs> contacts and He's all kinds of stuff. little <laughs> bit of the book and saying, that's the poem. And, and the rest of everything this else. Is, uh, I like how visual I'm being today. Nobody right. <laughs> can actually see anything I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's the interesting thing about... And I guess there are a lot of interesting things about it, but it's just that... About Beowulf? About this translation or about this version of it is that it's just so auditory, if that's the right word. Yeah. It took Brandon listening to it to hook him, and it made me want to read it out loud, and that's sort of the genius of of it. Yeah. It demands to be heard. Right? It, its oral tradition comes out in the style. Yeah, it really does, and that's a great that's a great thing about his version in particular, and it's certainly different than the – I think probably I read Raphael. I think he's one of the – Burton Raphael or something wrote a – version that was kind of the one that just got passed around before Haney. I remember reading it in junior high. I think we read a section of it in a crappy translation in high, in um, class. And I thought, oh, this is, uh, this is interesting. It's got monsters and monsters and stuff like that. So I went to the library and wanted to get the book to read the whole thing for myself. And I just happened to not, not knowing any better, not particularly trying. I, the Seamus Haney version was the one that I found and I read it and loved it. And that's my baggage. I did, I did have a similar experience to Jake in reading it this time. And that I think we, we misplayed our hand by scheduling the book for some, the middle of summer. There is something about, you want that wintry feel. You want to be mm-hmm. curled up by the fire or preferably in a meat hall with Brendan Chastine drinking mead and, telling you the story Irish brogue <laughs> Irish brogue <laughs> <laughs> yeah summer is a time for fun light hearted yeah right yeah we'll know that for our programming next year but uh yay we get to read Macbeth for <laughs> <laughs> this is the ironic summer reading list <laughs> <laughs> yeah next year next year we'll schedule the gulag archipelago for July <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Booking was written and produced by me, Nathan Albertson. It was performed by Nathan Albertson, Brandon Chastain, and Jacob Mensel. You can go to warhornmedia.com for lots more amazing content, including ordering Sim Bailey's new book, New Tribe. If you enjoyed this podcast, go on iTunes and leave us a nice rating or review. That's really helpful, and we would thank you very much for doing that.